Well, as you know, we, uh, we're going to finish up today <coughs> the Bible itself. And then next, uh, next, um, next time we're going to start into the doctrinal series, uh, which will be the seven series, uh, God's systematic theology, the seven mysteries, seven judgments, seven resurrections. And we'll, we'll get into that next time. First thing we did when we started talking about the Bible in our institute was, um, you know, remember we defined the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. We basically laid that out for you that you could, um, you could get a handle on all of that because uh, that's the key to the Bible. And then the next thing I did was, <coughs> you know, I broke the Bible down into 17 uh, sections. And we have systematically went through, uh, looked at each section, and then uh, independently, and explained it. And then you should now, if you were keeping up with these, you should now have in your notebook, in your Bible, or whatever, the complete Bible laid out section by section. It makes it so much easier. When we start to go from here on and start to get the Bible down and, and lay it out, you're going to see how, how, how valuable what we did is because now everything's going to be able to go into a little compartment and that 17 compartments will pick up and put together the whole Bible for you. The key to the Bible is, is breaking it down into the natural divisions, rightly dividing the word of truth, learning each division and then having the ability to bolt it back together. And you should have that now and do that. And uh, you know that to me is the foundation of the Bible. Uh, now we're going to go to work, now that the foundation is laid, um, you know, we're going to go through the rest of it um, and show you how to put the furnishings in. So just so you know, our first section with Genesis 1-1, we covered the fall of the gap and all of that. Um, the second section uh, was the refurbishing of God's heavens. We talked about that. We moved into the third section, which was Adam and Eve. The fourth section was Noah. Um, we got into the fifth section, which is really a, a pivotal point of even early in your Bible. That's Abraham. Uh, we see from him the nation of Israel. Uh, the sixth section was the fact that when they went down in Egypt, how that plays out. Then we saw the seventh was the calling out. And uh, then the eighth was the establishment. And then nine was the demise. And then 10 was the captivity. Now, <clears throat> those first 10 there... Uh, obviously is uh, the old ancient landmark that we have been talking about. So now as I've been going through it on Sunday, it should make more sense to you uh, because you have all the components together. And the first 10 sections of your Bible all deal with the landmark. And then we covered with that, you know, the 400 silent years that God didn't speak to anybody. And then the 11th one, obviously, was the first coming of Christ and, and how important that was. The 12th one was the church age. Um, then the 13th was the tribulation. Uh, the 14th was the second coming. And then we have just finished up uh, the 15th was the millennium. Now, there's two sections left, and that'll be section 16 and section 17. We're going to uh, talk about those both today because they do go together. Uh, and I want you to... Uh, see how that they deal. So we should be able to finish that up today, and then we'll go from there. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now what I'm about to show you here uh, is not, you, you, is, is nowhere in today. <laughs> I'm just kidding you. It's absolutely nowhere. You'll get this. 
and uh, I Larkin touches on it, and some of the old guys talk about it. Uh, when I was young and I was getting into the Bible and I was being taught the Bible, you know, it was standard operational procedure to lay it out. But uh, when you lose the Bible, you lose a lot of things, and this is this was never very clear to begin with, and it's really now in obscurity, and nobody even understands it anymore. It's it's incredible how it's lost. Now the key verse here, and there's two, uh, and they both say the same thing. So we'll just go to Deuteronomy seven verses nine and ten, but also First Chronicles chapter sixteen verse fifteen says the same thing again. Maybe a little different, but it's the same thing. And it says this, Know therefore uh, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face, and destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him, he will repay him face to face. Now, this is one of these obscure verses in the Bible that it would be easy to see how somebody could miss it because it doesn't really jump out at you. But it says something that uh, if you're a careful Bible student that you'd catch that, um, you'd know that there's something more here than just the, a verse of, of going through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Because he's talking about God keeping the covenants and the mercy uh, with somebody to a thousand generations. Now, obviously the person that he's talking about here is the nation of Israel. But the problem is that that has never happened. There has never been a time when God has enacted his covenant with them for a thousand generations. Now, the next issue is we have to define, and there's no way we can do this for sure, but we have to define uh, what a generation is in the Bible. And there are several. Uh, the age of Christ, 33, is a generation. Uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 7, uh, the number 47 uh, is a generation. Uh, in Genesis 15, 100 years is a generation. And in Psalms chapter 90, verse 10, 70 years has, is, is listed as a generation. Now, um, verse 9 has never been fulfilled. That's a future verse. For there has never been a time that, um, that uh, Israel has had these covenants for a thousand generations. Now, we know when we get into eternity here in a little bit that eternity has no time involved with it. So when we get into eternity, there are no generations. Um, so whatever this is, whatever this is has to be a period of time after the millennium, or maybe I should say a continuation of the millennium, uh, before eternity starts, which on the short side could run 33,000 years, on the high side could reach 100,000 years depending on what God is counting as a generation. So, back in the day, uh, when I was taught the Bible, we were taught that before eternity starts, God has a period of time that He promised to the nation of Israel that He was going to continue on 
the thousand-year period for a thousand generations. Now, maybe, maybe, um, maybe the thousand-year reign of Christ is the first thousand years of it. I don't know. That's immaterial. But this can only be fulfilled in one place. And, and a lot of times you figure out the Bible by deducing what it can't be. And then understanding what only, once you understand what it can't be, then you put it into a context of what it only can be. For instance, this can't be anything in the past because it's never happened to Israel. So he can't be talking about something that he was going to do in Deuteronomy or with the nation of Israel in the next thousand years of their existence. And it can't be out in eternity because we know that eternity is timeless. There's no time there. So just by understanding what it can't be, we can put it into a context, even though we don't have a lot of information about it, where it has to go. And it has to go between, uh, it has to go between the millennium and before eternity starts. Now, <clears throat> That in itself brings up a lot of issues, and I don't, be, I don't profess to understand them all, uh, but it's what, it's what you got. Now, look, keep your finger here and turn over to Isaiah chapter 34. Now, once you establish that the ages of ages is a specific time, and it's based on generations, then that in itself, as a key, is going to open up a lot of things in the Bible that when you find verses, like the one I'm about to give you, um, you can see it now better where it must fit. It says in verse 8 of Isaiah 34, and it, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and of the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall be become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. The smoke thereof, here it comes, shall go up forever from generation to generation. Now you start to find the verses that have the word generation in them, or ages in them, are going to put us back into this context. Now, I'll show you another one. <clears throat> Psalm seventy two five. <clears throat> Uh, pick it up in four. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. Now, verse four is obviously talking about, and verse three and verse two is the millennium. There's no question about that. It says in verse two, he shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. Millennium. Uh, the mountains shall bring peace to thy people. Millennium. 
uh, and the little hills by righteousness, the millennium. He shall judge the poor of his people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. That will be the people uh, in the millennium, at the end of the millennium, like we talked about, who tried to overthrow it again. Now look at verse 5. They shall fear thee as long as the sun of the moon endure throughout all generations. There it is again. Now that indicates that whatever this ages of ages is, is going to continue to pick up after the millennium or continue on with the millennium. Now, look at Ephesians Uh, let's go to one nine first. Ephesians one nine, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time. Now there's where eternity starts. Eternity will become is the starts with the dispensation of the fullness of time. In other words, time as we know it comes to an end. It's full. It's done. And so that is where eternity starts. Uh, that he might together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. So that clearly is eternity. Now look at this, 2-7. <clears throat> Verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, there it is, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now, <clears throat> those are two verses that clearly show you that there's a time coming when there's a fullness of time, and time ceases to exist as we know it. But it also shows you that somewhere before that, we have the ages to come. And that will be the ages of ages. Now, <clears throat> I say this, and I, <clears throat> I give this to you simply because, <clears throat> even though I don't understand a lot about it, and nobody does, um, it's something that fits into your Bible that you need to know where it goes. Obviously, <clears throat> You're not going to run into this with people today because it's absolutely obscured. <clears throat> there isn't. I, I, I'm just telling you, there isn't anybody who understands the ages or, or knows about the ages of ages. Nobody understands it, but nobody even knows about it. <clears throat> but it's clear from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and, and, and Chronicles 16 <clears throat> that a promise was made to Israel that God was going to continue on the covenant with them. That covenant is found in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. It's a new covenant he makes in the millennium. That's going to go for a thousand generations. 
So <clears throat> we have to put that somewhere before eternity starts, the fullness of times. So here's what you have, and here's what I want you to remember. I'm not going to give you a lot on this because <clears throat> there's not a lot to give you, but I want you to understand what it is. I want you to understand at least where it fits and know that it lasts for a thousand generations, even though <laughs> it could be 33,000 years on the low side, 100,000, or maybe even 120 on the high side, depending on how God's counting the generation. Now, <laughs> that's the good news. Here's the bad news, maybe, probably. We know that in the judgment seat of Christ, there are some people who are going to be found naked. And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, talks about us desiring to have our bodies clothed. You know, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and some people are going to walk naked. Now, we know that that naked walk is going to be uh, during the millennium for a thousand years. Now, <clears throat> the real question comes in, does it go beyond that? In other words, if you were thinking, I can sweat out a thousand years without being any clothes on, now you have a new problem. <clears throat> it just may be that your uh, naked condition uh, is, on the short side, going to be 33,000 years, and on the high side, 100 to 120,000 years, if he follows through with everything. And uh, the judgment seat of Christ is obviously one of the great unknowns of Christianity today. Nobody preaches on it anymore. You're going to see when we get into the doctrinal stuff next time um, how that God's systematic theology of doctrine just lays itself out so clearly. And I'll go into that next time. I've learned over the years, and I read a lot, or did, did read a lot. I don't read as much as I used to. <coughs> when you know it all, there's nothing more to read. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but it is really hard to find good preaching out there today, so that's why I just listen to myself. <clears throat> I'm kidding again, I'm kidding again, I'm kidding again. Bottom line is this. I've learned that everything out there that man does, writes, puts out there, if you just, if you just look at it and spend some time with it, you'll see that everything comes back to the Bible. <clears throat> Years ago, there was a book, and most of you probably read this when you were in school, you just never made the connection. I'm teaching the Bible right now, and I do not want to talk to you. No, it was a, it, I have my home phone forwarded, because I never use my home phone anymore. I don't even know why we still have it. We, everybody uses cell phones. So I have it forwarded to my cell phone. So I can tell when it's a forwarded call. So everybody out there who's an idiot that wants to sell you something or, or you know, calls the home phone number. So it folds over. And I usually, I forgot to put it down on vibrate. So what was I saying? Oh, yeah. There's a book that most of you read. Probably in school, you just never made the connection. It's called 
Remember the book, The Emperor's New Clothes? Yeah, sure you do. And you know the story. The story was basically uh, that the king, um, you know, wanted a fine set of clothes, and this guy uh, got him to believe that he had made him a set of clothes that was the most beautiful clothes on the planet that only uh, the king could see. And so um, the king, he very laboriously puts on these clothes, with, he takes his clothes off, he's naked, and he puts on these clothes, he's still naked, but it, he's thinking in his mind, look at these clothes. Everybody's afraid to tell the king he's naked. So he struts around the palace in a thing, naked as a jaybird, thinking he's clothed in, in great kingly apparel. And I read that story years and years and years ago, and I never made the connection either until I really got into the Word of God. But do you know that that's what most preachers have done with most Christians? You're naked, not you, you're naked this morning at the judgment seat of Christ, but the preachers have told you that the clothes you have on are absolutely beautiful. You see that? And you, both the God's people walking around, look at me, look at me, yeah, look at you, you're naked, you're naked, you're naked. Down south, it's naked, you're naked. And it's the fact that we have, we just like the book, somebody has told us, and then most preachers are afraid to tell you that you're really naked. And when you walk into their church and you have your fake clothes on, they don't want to upset you, so they tell you what a great person you are. And see, my spiritual gift is upsetting you. So <laughs> it's a thing where I'll, I'll tell you. And, but that's where it all comes from. And the scary part is that if this thing follows through, that nakedness that we walk in could be uh, anywhere on the short side of 33,000 years to 100, 120,000. So for what, take that for what it is. Now, I don't say that to scare you because very honestly, I'm just going to be honest with you, and I know I don't know I don't know the deep dark resources of your mind. I get that, but most of you here, all of you probably here, uh, I'm not saying we all don't have something to worry about the jumping of Christ. But the bottom line is, you're probably doing enough to get a long T-shirt. <laughs> So, let's just leave it at that, okay? <laughs> now, whatever this age of ages is, the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is the Song of Solomon of the New Testament. Uh, there's two great intimate books that are impacting to you and to me uh, that ought to be where we hang out the most. And of course, in the Old Testament, it's the Song of Solomon. In the Song of Solomon, it shows you what your attitude should be toward Christ based on his attitude toward you. It's an incredible book. We've been through it many, many times. In the New Testament, it'll be the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is the most intimate book in the New Testament for the church uh, because that's where Paul explains the church. He goes into it in every detail. So you might know because it's such a spiritual book and such a deep book that it's where all the guru crowd wants to hang out of Christianity, like the predestination crowd and all that stuff, because it is such a deep spiritual book. 
but it's an empowering book. And that tells us in that book, we just saw it, that there's going to come a time when the fullness of times. Now, there's two phrases in the Bible that you need to know. And uh, let me get over here uh, in Rome. I'm going to Romans. You don't have to. This is where I have my note on it, I think. I want to make sure I give you the right reference. Actually, there's four terms you want to remember. And the first one is found in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. And that will be the times of the Gentiles. Now, I'm sure most of you know this, but let's just give me all four. I'll give you all four of them here together. The times of the Gentiles starts in 606 B.C. And uh, Tabby asked the question, I think it was Tabby asked the question Thursday night about 606 being the time and not, not adding up. Well, you know that now. But 606 B.C. is the official designated uh, time. Uh, so the times of the Gentiles is when God is finished with the nation of Israel, the kingdom of heaven is done, and we enter into now Gentile domination of the world, times of the Gentiles. Then in Romans chapter 11, we, verse 25, we have another term called the fullness of the Gentiles. That will be when the last Gentile gets saved. And that triggers the rapture of the church. God's got it all worked out in his mind. Somebody's out there is going to be the last person saved. I mean, somebody has to. Um, and, and that will be, the in God's mind, that will fill up the Gentile category uh, to his own satisfaction. And there's some reasons behind that. Uh, but that'll be the fullness of the Gentiles. And that's Romans 11.25. Then, just as uh, the fullness of the Gentiles is when... Uh, the Gentiles, uh, the last Gentile gets in and there's no more, then you have the dispensation of the fullness of time, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, which we just talked about. That's when time becomes full and there's no more time. And that is where the church history is gone, the 7,000 years, uh, the 1,000-year millennium. We've worked through the ages of ages. Now we come to a point which is found in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, uh, that is a, a, a complete uh, system breakdown. Now, I have been asked before, now let me show you how wonderful the Bible is. I have been asked before <clears throat> that when you come through the book of Revela Revelation, everything's accounted for in order. You go from the church age to the tribulation, the tribulation to the millennium, to the millennium, to the new heavens and the new earth, to the new heavens and the new earth into eternity. And I have been asked before, why is that block of time, the ages of ages, not found in the continuity of the book of Revelation? And, you know, I thought about that for a long time and then just hit me one day um, why that would be. And that is because the Bible is consistent. You have and I've showed you this before, back in Genesis, you have Adam and Eve in a Garden of Eden in a perfect place. Then when you get into eternity, the book of Isaiah tells you again that that's a Garden of Eden. So if the Bible is consistent and the Bible always plays itself out and repeats itself, we have an unknown time period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 called the Gap. We studied it. For the Bible to be complete, we'd have to have an unknown time period on the other end. There's your ages of ages. And that's how it works. Now, when you 
as an individual Christian can see things like that, figure that out, reason that out, you're really doing good. <clears throat> Most of God's people can't think that way. Uh, they don't think on that level. Now, you guys are different. And there's other people in our church that are not here. I don't want to just single you guys out. I would say the majority of our church are, is different. You really go after the Bible. So if I point something out like this, then you've never seen it before. <clears throat> All that does for you is make you get your little antennae up that you're looking now. Once you see that, you look for other things. And that's how you learn. That's how you learn. Once I saw there were things like that in the Bible... Then I started looking everywhere for them. You got to be careful, though. <clears throat> As you know, you can make the Bible mean anything. You have to follow the chain of evidence. Just like I gave you the Genesis 1, 1, and 2, and then I showed you the unknown time element on the other end. <clears throat> See, that's a chain of evidence. We know that history repeats itself. We know that God is going to make a Garden of Eden in Genesis, and he's going to make one in eternity. We know that. So we see that the models in the Bible, usually everything you have in Genesis up to a certain point is a model of what's going to be down the line someplace. He gave Abraham a covenant. That's a model of the new covenant he's going to give him in Hebrews 8 and 9. Everything in Genesis is a model. <coughs> and, <coughs> you know, <coughs> and you just want to remember that. So, but you always got to have a chain of evidence to follow the thing through. So that's why there is no uh, ages of ages categorized for you in the consistency of, of what you have in Revelation. It's because it's an unknown time element, just like it's an unknown time element. You cannot find an exact verse that says between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, God and the devil got in a knockdown drag out and destroyed the universe. You can't find that. But you know it's true because of the consistency of what you find that puts it all together. God knew that that was going to be a hard point for a lot of people. And he wanted it to be a hard point for a lot of people because one of the seven things that they rejoice about in heaven is stupid, educated Bible scholars not being able to figure out the Bible. And they rejoice over that in heaven. Jesus said, I rejoice, Father, that you hid these things from these educated uh, scribes and the Pharisees. And so they rejoice in heaven. Uh, when you get a Bible scholar that sits down there and can't figure it out, um, you know, it, people say you shouldn't laugh at them. Why not? They're laughing up in heaven. They're having a great time. They're rejoicing over the fact that somebody's that educatedly stupid. Or I shouldn't say educated out of their intelligence, but, but that's the way it is. So you see these things, and they always follow a chain of evidence. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is, is, um, is eternity. Now, let's go back to uh, 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 Isaiah chapter 9. Now, I'm going to try to make this as easy for you as I can. I'm going to make it as simplified for you as I can. Not that I think that you're not intelligent, but I want everybody to get it. And very frankly, this is how I had to do it for me to learn. And so I know you're smarter than I am, and you really are. But the bottom line is, if it worked for me, it'll work for you. So here's what you got. I, I alluded to this the last couple of weeks. I will allude to it again tomorrow. Um, but um, God has three distinct plans going on. 
in the Bible. Uh, most of God's people will never figure them out. Uh, the easiest one we would all would agree on would be that God has a plan for your life. 99.9% of God's people never figure that one out. How in the world are they going to figure the other two out? Now, I want to walk you through this, and um, I'm going to save the universe for last, but come over to Isaiah chapter 45. Now look at verse 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens. Notice it's plural because there's three heavens. Our atmosphere is the first heaven. Outer space is the second heaven. And God's throne is in the third heaven. Okay, you want to remember that. Uh, God himself that formed the earth and made it and hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Now, you know what? If I, was a, if I worked for NASA, uh, or I was an astronomer, or I, my name was, uh, what was that crippled guy's name? That, uh, Stephen Hawking. Yeah, he just died here. Uh, or if I was Carl Sagan, who died a number of years ago. Uh, I would not be looking for life in any other planets. You know why? Because that verse right there. That verse told me that God created the earth for a purpose. He established it for a purpose, and that purpose is for it to be inhabited. And uh, the other planets have never been inhabited. And uh, they have what they call now in the uh, um, scientific world, and the advancement is beyond belief. They have now what they call exoplanets. And exoplanets are planets that are way outside our solar system. And uh, the last count I had, there was something like 18, 19, maybe 2,000 exoplanets that they found. Those exoplanets, they say, uh, are <clears throat> probably have life living on them. We know they don't, but they do. Many of them are absolutely uh, a million times bigger than the Earth. Um, They don't know what to do with them because they won't follow the Bible. But that Bible says that, that God created earth, established it for the purpose of making it inhabited. Now, eternity seems like a hard thing to understand, but it's really not. It's like everything else. When you use the Bible, the complex becomes simplicity. And you learn what's going to be. This is an absolute rule of the Bible. You learn what's going to be by what has already been. This is the theme of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. He says, does somebody say, see, this is new? And somebody says, oh, no, no, it's been around a long time. We never learned the Bible to begin with, so we never see the historical aspect of what God has done, and then we don't have the ability to make the application of what he's going to do in the future. Now, here's the bottom line. I, I, Ruckman's chart over here is a phenomenal chart. This is the best chart I have ever seen. 
Most people like it. Most people see it. But most people don't read the last, the first part over here. But I'm going to read for you. At the beginning of his chart, and this chart runs all the way from eternity, it says, God's original purpose was to populate an infinite universe with a people made in his image, subject to him as almighty sovereign. This first trial ends in Genesis 1-2 with a rebellion of these spiritual beings and a recreation and a recommission for man made lower than the angels to begin the work anew. This trial ends in Genesis 3 verses 1 through 13 and the subsequent revelation of God is devoted to an accurate record of God himself becoming a man to redeem a fallen creation and to absolutely ensure that God will finish to perfection his original plan. And now he's got Revelation 20, 22. So God's original plan and purpose was to have the outer space, the, all the universes out there. And, you know, the terminology gets a little misleading at this point because we think of the universe as outer space. That's really technically not true. Outer space from a Bible's description is called the second heaven. It's called the firmament. That firmament is an expanse of endless space. And what you have is within that expanse of endless space, you have galaxies which are called universes. If you would go out on a clear night out in a farm someplace and you would see the Milky Way coming down through the sky... That Milky Way is one of the spiral arms of our universe, our galaxy. So when we use the word universe, and I know I do it too, because we use terms that people are familiar with, but they're not always accurate. And when I'm teaching it to you, I want it to be accurate so you know. So when you hear somebody say it, you can put it in order and you know what you got. The universe is a galaxy. Back when the Hubble first came out, we were really limited with what we could see. Um, from Earth-based telescopes, we could see, um, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of galaxies. And uh, we could get a glimpse of how big the universe really was. <clears throat> but Earth-bound telescopes are always um, relative to Earth's atmosphere, and you don't have the clarity. Uh, and somebody says, well, the bigger the telescope, the better. That's true to an degree, but you got to understand this too. The bigger the telescope, you may think you see better and more, and you do, but the bigger the telescope also magnifies all the crud that you're looking through. So it really is a trade-off. Though, given a 10-inch telescope and a 200, I'll take the 200. But anyway, but so when they put the Hubble telescope up into, up into orbit, uh, it kind of rev revolutionized, and they've got much better stuff now than even then. And, of course, once they got the Hubble telescope up there, uh, it was not subject then to um, all the dirt in the atmosphere. And, you know, you can see the dirt in the atmosphere if you know what you're looking for on any given night. Uh, when the, if, Say the moon's full, and the moon uh, is just coming up over there, and it looks 
like it's going to hit planet Earth. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. And you're saying, oh, and, and, and some well-meaning people who said, yeah, the moon's closer now this month. I read that someplace, so it looks bigger. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and your mother wore combat boots, and she was a member of the 1st Marine Division. I get on Guadalcanal. I understand that. <laughs> and then suddenly you come out at 10 o'clock, and the moon now has shrunk back to its normal size. And, of course, the reason for that is is because when you're looking out in the horizon up to about 30, 40 degrees, you're looking through about 600 miles of crud. And when light comes through that, the crud that you're looking through, uh, we call it light diffraction, makes objects looking a lot bigger than you do. When it gets up in the sky, say it's overhead, now you're only looking through about 10 or 15 miles of, of bad distortion. And uh, so it, it gets more real in its appearance. This was the charismatic guy who is an idiot who came up with the aspect about the blood moons. Today, and I must have got a thousand emails on the blood moon. What do you think about the blood moon? What do you think is going to happen? I think that. And, and, and of course, this guy was a charismatic. And you know, the, the first thing, I, if somebody, somebody said to me, this charismatic guy come up with the idea about the blood moon, what do you think? Without even looking at one thing that he found, without even looking at one piece of evidence, I'd say forget it because God is not going to reveal anything to an idiot that's a charismatic. <laughs> End of story. So whatever he's got isn't any good. I mean, that's just the way it is. But all these Baptists, you know, all these Christians, and I know a lot of Christians who don't know the Bible, a lot of preachers who don't know the Bible, they got to get something exciting. So this was exciting. And of course, little be known that the reason why the blood moon looks so red when it comes up, you know, is because, again, you're looking through all the dirt in the atmosphere, and not only does it diffract the light, but it colors the image. And the, the greatest blood moon that you ever saw when it's coming up got white when it got over top of this thing because the, the dirt went away, so to speak. But that's just where you're at. So when the Hubble got out there, uh, they didn't have any of that to contend with. And I remember back in the day, and I have a copy of it, that uh, they, uh, the, the Hubble had, a, had a, a CCD camera on it that was uh, quite um, phenomenal. And they, let, they, they pointed that, that uh, Hubble telescope at a point in the sky that if you and I were down here on Earth looking at that point of sky, and we took a pin, like a little straight pin with a little head on it, you know, that you put in your shirt to hold the sleeves up or whatever when you buy it. If you held that pin out at arm's length, the head of that pin would cover that portion of sky. That's how small it was. They allowed that Hubble telescope to stay open for the lens to stay open, and as long as it opened, it gathers more light, and it gathers more images because it's so sensitive that the longer you, you, you leave it open, uh, the more light comes in. You've seen all my pictures that I have taken uh, that are, are quite phenomenal for, for, and I took all of those right in the driveway of my home in Raytown. And people thought I went to mountaintops to take it. Yeah, I went to Mount Alexander, which is in my backyard. That's where I took it from. And, but it was the camera. And I, my camera back then, which was, was you know, they're much better now. But it was, a, it was a poor man version of what they had on the Hubble. The Hubble chip was about that big. My chip was about as big as your little fingernail. But boy, it did the job. 
if I was using standard film and say I wanted to shoot uh, a galaxy and I was using 35 millimeter film in a camera, I would have to shoot that and guide that for probably two hours to get any kind of image. And it wouldn't be a really good image, but it would be there. I could take that same CD camera, put it in my telescope, take a 30-second exposure, and get better results than the film did in two and a half hours. That's how fast they were. Well, you can imagine with a chip that big on there. And so they, they let it open for like 24 hours, and then they, they gathered everything in, and then they obviously processed it. And what came out was one of the most unbelievable um, things that you ever saw in your life. On that photographic plate were 100,000 galaxies. On one picture, each one of those galaxies was probably at least 600 million, 800 million light years across. It was unbelievable. One picture over 100,000 galaxies in a point of the sky you could cover up with a pin and cover it. And it, it was the most unbelievable thing, and it shocked the scientific world. They had no idea the galaxies were that prevalent. And then they started getting better stuff, and they found that the whole universe is just rift with galaxies, universes that uh, many times are bigger than ours. And it's a thing where it's, you know, there's just millions and millions and millions, and millions is a, is a bad number to use. There's endless. Each one of them could probably contain an infinite number of planets. I mean... It's, it, it's unbelievable. And these are the planets that they're now, in their very limited way, finding out and getting an understanding of. And it's beginning to show now how vast outer space really is. And, and there's a reason for that because of the fact, now we want to come back over to Isaiah chapter 9. God has a plan for the universe. Now, I'm not going to get real technical on this, and I'm not going to spend the time to give you all the reference verses on it. I'm going to tell you the story of it. It'll be easier for you to understand it. You can pick up the verses on any of the things that we've taught before uh, or ask on Thursday night or whatever you want, but I don't want to bog us down this morning. I, I just want to tell you what you got because this is so massive that I, don't want, I want you to hear the story of it and walk away understanding what I'm saying. Now look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Now follow this. And here again, this is why not only are the words in the Bible important, but the punctuation is important too. And I know this drives people up the wall because they would think, how, you mean God inspired the punctuation? Yeah, that's why when you were born, you put a question mark over your head. <laughs> look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now watch how the punctuation separates dispensations. Watch it very carefully. And you see the punctuation there is a, is a colon. See that? Watch. For unto us a child are born, unto us a son is given. Punctuation mark. That's the first coming of Christ. Now watch. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the second coming of Christ and the millennium. Punctuation again. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's eternity. You have three distinct dispensations laid out in one verse separated by the, the, uh, the, uh, the punctuation. And then verse 7. Once he laid out the first coming, the second coming, and eternity, then he shows you the plan. And of the increase of his government. Now what government is that? That is the government that is established in the millennial reign of Christ when he comes back. And of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Then God's original plan, God's original plan was to have, as, as Dr. Ruckman uh, laid out for us up there, God's original plan was to have a universe of sinless beings a universe of sinless beings that fellowshiped with him, worshiped him, that he could have fellowship with. Now, God has a wife, ancient landmark. So for eternity, God wants to stay married to his wife as God the Father, and he wants to take care of Israel as his wife. He has a son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His son has a bride, the church, the old landmark. So, through all of eternity, God's original plan is to have men and women who live for eternity and fellowship with God and never die. And of the increase of that government that starts in Revelation chapter 20, there's never going to be an end. This is the reason why you have all the endless galaxies out there with the endless planets that science tells us that there's life in outer space they look at our planets and they say maybe there was life out there at one time or there's alien life out there now. And of course they got it backwards. There has never been any life in outer space as we know it, human life. That is for what is coming. Now here's what God has done. Now I'm going to walk you through this and you know, uh, if if you want all the references on it, ask Thursday night, but I just I don't want to get bogged down in it today. Now here's what you got. Now, we know from the Bible that the second heaven is shaped like a pyramid. It may be that a pyramid has how many sides? I forget. Six? Huh? Four. Four sides. Oh, okay, four sides. It may be it has a side here, a side here, and a side here, and a side on the back. If that's a picture of the second heaven, then uh, the second heaven may have itself have four dimensions to it, that this thing is eternal on all four sides, which make it endless of what you could do with it. Now, the Bible says that back in Genesis 1-1, that this is God's throne up here. Job sees this. And we know that there's water up here and there's water down here someplace. When John sees this, he sees that the third heaven, he calls it a sea of glass. And that's because the top of the deep, which is water, is frozen. Job tells you that. The deep is frozen. It tells you that. So God's throne is sitting up here someplace. 
And this is back in Genesis 1-1 before. And the earth at that point was up here at the top of the universe, top of the, the second heaven. Um, stay away from the universe. God's original plan <coughs> was to make planet earth inhabited and to get the thing, the place where he was going to populate everything down through here on all four sides. But we know that God will not force anybody to love him. So before God could enact that plan, it had to go through a process of purging that when it got to the place that the plan was ready to go, that everybody that was part of that chose to be there. So he gives the cherubim a choice. Lucifer opts out and says, I'm going to be God. He gives the angels that he created a choice. Bible says in Revelation 12 and 13, a third of them go with the devil. So we have a disruption now of the gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 where the devil tries to overthrow because God's plan is going to be, as he unfolds this, he's going to give everything that he created a choice. So now he's given the cherubim a choice. He's given the angels a choice. Now he recreates everything, and after this thing, the earth now and the universe is now in chaos, and it's in sin. So now the Bible tells us in Job and also in Isaiah that now that when this happens, the earth gets knocked out of its place. So it was up here. Now it's down here. We are at the bottom of the universe. Ah, excuse me. We are at the bottom of the second heaven. And uh, we're down here because of the fact that God is going to now enact his plan of redemption to, as he says here, the subsequent revelation of God is devoted to an accurate record of God himself becoming a man to redeem a fallen creation and absolutely ensure that God will finish to perfection his original plan. Now nah, that's where he's going. So now he puts Adam and Eve down here. And Adam and Eve, if you remember the story, they're in a perfect garden in a perfect estate. Bible tells us that when God comes down and reestablishes everything in eternity, it's going to be just like the Garden of Eden. I've showed you those verses before. So he puts Adam and Eve down there. Adam and Eve don't have to wear any clothes. Their weather is perfect. Uh, the animals are all perfect. There's no curse on the earth. Uh, the food just lays on the ground or whatever. It's a wonderful time. But God's plan is that he told Adam and gave him a commission to be, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Now, if Adam would have lived forever, Eve would have lived forever, and they would have had subsequent kids forever and ever and ever, there would have been a time when the earth would have become full. And don't think for a moment that God's up there in heaven, happy about Adam and Eve, and then an angel runs in and says, you ain't going to believe this, but they populated the whole earth. What are we going to do now? God's plan was to take them out to these other universes, put them down two by two. That's the plan. The plan is laid out in Genesis. And that they would, and every time it got to a point that it lipped off two more and put them over here, and that would be the ongoing plan. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. But you know what happened. God says, Well, I gave the cherubim a choice, I gave the angels a choice, now I got to give man a choice. So the devil shows up, Adam and Eve have to make their choice. And you know what happened. 
they made their choice. Now the earth has got a curse on it. And so God then comes back again and he, he, uh, he, uh, he says, okay, now we're going to carry this thing through. So Adam and Eve are in a fallen state. If Adam and Eve were not have sinned, the Bible says that at some point they would have got the tree of life. And if they got the tree of life, they'd have lived forever. That tree of life is very important. Now, most Bible scholars, and I would say, and I know people don't like me to use this equation, 99.9999% of the pastors in this world have no idea why the tree of life is found in Genesis and then found again in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14. They will tell you that is a mistake. They will tell you that when Erasmus translated uh, the Bible, uh, it, is, it is Greek net from which the King James Bible came from, uh, when Erasmus translated the book of Revelation chapter 22, he didn't have the manuscripts uh, that uh, would have given him that. So he went back to the old Latin and the old, uh, old Syriac that was of the Waldensians, and uh, uh, he retranslated it from there, which is quite a feat, into Greek and then from Greek uh, to his new text. So they say he made a mistake. Later on, when they actually found the material, the Greek text that had it in, they went in there and found out that Erasmus was exactly right. Revelation chapter 22 is in uh, Tree of Life because there's a Tree of Life at the beginning, and when you get out into eternity, when God's government goes on and on and on, the Tree of Life is going to come back into effect again. You can't have a Garden of Eden in Revelation chapter 22 without a Tree of Life, and that's how it works. That's how they're going to get eternal life. That's the model in Genesis. Once you see that the model in Genesis is the model for almost everything else in the Bible, then you follow it through. So he gives Adam and Eve a chance. You know what happens. Sin comes into the earth. So then God begins to bring out. He uses all of this. He begins now to call out for his purpose, for his plan. He now <coughs> begins to call out a people through Abraham that are going to become a nation that's going to be God's wife. But that nation gets to make a choice. And all down through the Old Testament, before the law, when God dealing with the Gentiles, per se, they have to make a choice. When you get into the law, under the nation of Israel, the whole Gentile world and the nation of Israel has to make a choice. That brings us up to the first coming of Christ. And God now has a remnant of people that He's going to start with when He gets to Isaiah chapter 9. They're good. They're in the pocket. They've got to go through the tribulation yet to get fully restored, but he's got them, and he's going to start with that remnant. Now he has to get a bride for his son. All this, all this is in preparation for what's going to happen out in the future when that government gets established and it moves out and God ensures that his original plan is fulfilled. So now his son comes down and dies. He makes a way. And uh, we have the church age in the New Testament. And now people are coming in spiritual bodies, you and me. You get born again. You become Christ, Christ living in you, the hope of glory. Now you become, a, you're, if you're saved here this morning, the Holy Spirit of God and Jesus Christ is living inside you. That happened to nobody in the Old Testament. Someday the Bible says, Romans chapter 8, you're going to get a glorified body that's going to match the glorified spirit inside of you, and you're going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. For all practical purposes, you're going to be Christ. It's just that simple. Okay, so right now everything's down here. God is giving everybody a choice. After the rapture of the church, we have the tribulation period. That's to regather and reestablish the remnant of Israel. People get a choice. When we go into the millennium, we studied it, people get a choice. Now we're into uh, 
go through the ages of ages, we get that out of the way. Now we're ready for eternity. In eternity, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the Bible says there is no more sea. It's gone. Now this is a pyramid without any top because the top was God's throne. But when eternity comes in, the Bible says that New Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, comes down out of heaven, and New Jerusalem is shaped like this. Double-sided pyramid. Now, when it comes down, here's what happens. It comes down and it forms the capstone of the second heaven. And now the earth, which was down here, is now back up in its place. You have the church, you and me, here. And you have Israel here. And then from that, you have the original plan, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. People are being born. They're getting the tree of life. And then out here is all these galaxies. I mean, they're everywhere. And they're filled with planets. I mean, it looks like planets everywhere, because there are a lot of planets. And when there are a lot of planets, there are planets everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's a planet. You drive down the street in your spaceship, there's a planet. You move through warp drive five, and there's run into planets. They're everywhere. And all these galaxies out here, hundreds and hundreds of millions of them are everywhere. I mean, you just, they're incredible. They're everywhere. Uh, and with them is planets because the planets are everywhere. And it all starts from here. New Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. And God puts them down there just like he did in Genesis. He puts them on these planets two by two within these galaxies. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. When that earth, when that planet gets full, this is why the exoplanets, our earth is about this size. The average exoplanet they find is about that size. So you're going to get a lot more people on. And of course, uh, uh, they're going to get populated. That's his government. This is his government now. This is, going back again, this is that when Christ come down, it says the subsequent revelation of God is devoted to an accurate record of God himself becoming a man to redeem a fallen creation, that's me and you, and to absolutely ensure that God will finish to perfection his original plan. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on, except this time. There's no devil. There's no sin. Everything now is complete to God's satisfaction, and he now accomplishes his original plan. Having said that, that puts our life, the world, into context. World history. Now we know that man has only been here for 7,000 years or 6,000 years. Man has been here for 6,000 years. In that 6,000 years, God has worked out all the difficulties to please himself that pretty quick here he's ready to move on with the next installment and the rapture of the church is going to happen at any time. And somebody says, well, I don't believe the rapture. It's okay. You ain't going anyhow. 
not a problem. Now, let me take it the next step further. You're going to have people. Am I making it simple enough for you? I'm trying not to make it technical. Now, let me take it to the next step. In eternity, you're going to have people who were born in their natural bodies. They come from the nation of Israel and all the Gentile nations that are left. They are going to be in natural flesh and blood bodies. And if they don't get something to keep them from dying, they're going to die. So this is why in Revelation 22, 14, unbeknownst to the scholars, there's a tree of life again. That tree of life, that tree of life is the way that they go in. Now here's what you got. Salvation is of the Jews. Up here in New Jerusalem, everything's built on the nation of Israel. It has 12 foundations. It has 12 gates. It has 12 everything. This is why God has given us 12 months of the year. This is why God has given the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. This is why we have a counterfeit down here that once a year on your birthday, uh, you, you, have a, you, have a, you mark when you were born. You were born on one of the 12 months uh, of the year. And uh, everybody's just different. So what happens is this. These people get born. They're out on this exoplanet. And uh, God, is, God is fellowshipping with them. I'll get to that in a minute if I forget. Jog my memory. But I'm trying to get about 9,000 things in my mind here. They're on this planet. They were born. They're growing up. They hit the age 33. At age 33, something changes. This is why God chose. This is how it all comes together. This is why, Christ, this is why God chose Christ to live to 33 years old. I mean, life begins at 40, they say. Why didn't he go to 40? What's the magical number about 33? Why not 30? Why not 36? Why not 20? Why did God choose 33 to be the time that he stopped his son's life? Because he's the model. And when you get your glorified body, you're going to be a 33-year-old male. You're going to be just like Jesus Christ. You're going to look just like him. And so 33 is the key. So when somebody on this exoplanet that is born in their natural body, I'm going to get to us in a minute, in their natural body, hits 33 years of age. They go off that exoplanet, and i got to tell you now that this whole thing here, is divided up the whole second heaven, divided into 12 sections. After the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. See, right now the devil takes the 12 signs of the zodiac, which each one represents the tribe of Israel, and they try to get you to go through astrology to find out what your sign is. And they try to get you to figure out, you know, what sign do you live under? You know, and, and of course, that's all of the devil. And you see it all the time. Uh, Pam's mom was in the hospital over at John Knox Village here a couple of months ago, and I went over to see her, and I was walking down the hall, and I saw these two really old people, you know, standing in the hall, and they were talking. And the guy, you know, uh, just because they're, they're old folks in John Knox Village don't mean there isn't some sparks flying over there and love affairs going on. 
I mean, if you're 90 years old and you're John Ackville and that's all you got, you got to go for it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I was walking down the hall and I heard this guy hitting on this old lady. And, you know, he's trying to be cool. And he says to her, he says, uh, nice place, huh? And she says, yes, it's pretty nice. And he says, boy, he says, he says um, what's your name? And she tells him, she's, he says his name, you know. And he says, uh, what's your sign? She says, blue cross and blue shield. <laughs> anyway, I, I, that story's really not true. I just made it up, but I want to throw it in there. But that's what the world does. The world tries to put you under, the, okay, the real signs of the 12 tribes of the Zodiac deal with the nation of Israel. And this second heaven here is divided up into 12 sections. Now, here's what happens. Somebody's on the exoplanet. They hit 33. On a tree of life, there's 12 manners of fruit, salvations of the Jew. There's 12 levels. There's 12 gates. 12 months of the year. 12 signs of the zodiac. The outer space is divided into 12 sections. When they hit 33, they will be transported. Scotty, beam me up. They'll go into the Jew Jerusalem through the gate that matches the tribe to on the month that matches the tribe that the month represents. They'll come to the tree of life on their birthday and they'll take one of the 12 manners of fruit that matches up to the gate which matches up to the tribe which matches up to the tree which matches up to everything. And when they take that tree of life like Genesis chapter 2 and 3 they'll live forever. That's how it works. So in time you're going to have a universe. You're going to have a second heaven that is filled with a uni universes of men and women who now are in their physical, natural bodies. They never get a glorified body. But they're going to fellowship with God. And they're going to be God's original plan and purpose. And this is what heaven is. You see, come on. This is a big step away from what you get in most churches that when you die, you go to heaven where you get a harp issued to you and float around on a cloud, <laughs> plucking your way through eternity. A lot more to it than that. Honestly, no disrespect, if that's all the plan God had, I'm out. I'm out. I never liked harps anyhow. I'm out. So now, now we got another problem. All these galaxies down here filled up with all these exoplanets, with all these millions and millions and endless millions of people, especially if the, if the second heaven is four-sided like a pyramid. It's just undimensional. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know how many, you know if you have three numbers, you know if, if you want to put in a code, do you know how many hundreds of thousands of codes or if you can come up with three numbers? Well, you take a four-sided pyramid the size of, of, of the second heaven, you know how many, it's, it's innumerable what you could have in there. So here's what happens. God wants to fellowship with these people. How's he going to do that? Well, these people are in their natural flesh and blood bodies. But you and I, we've, we're the body of Christ. When you get the glorified body, you're going to look just like Jesus Christ. You're going to be Him. You're going to be God in every way, shape, or form. Now, the Bible teaches in Proverbs chapter 8 that there was a time back in the distant past that Jesus Christ 
stepped out of the Godhead and was manifest. He wasn't created. He was manifested. He's always been God, but God manifested himself in the form of a man. In the Old Testament, he's the angel of the Lord. When he comes down here, it's God manifesting himself. God was manifested in the flesh. We're going to see it when we get into the seven mysteries. And as the thing says over here, it says that, uh, that God is devoted to an record of God himself becoming a man to redeem a fallen creation. Now, when he came down, he left for 33 years, he died, rose again, and then he went back to heaven. Now, you've heard me say many, many times and ask the question, why did he do that? Why is he only down here for three years and then he goes back? You know why? Because now he's instituted a plan where he's going to have in time millions and millions and millions of born-again believers who are on the inside are Jesus Christ. So God didn't need him down here anymore. Now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession with the Holy Spirit of God that's inside of you, and you're already seated with him. So you're down here doing the work that he called you to do for his purpose. Some people do it, some people don't. Some people get dialed in, love God supremely. Some people love other people, other things more than they love God, and that's the way it goes. But when Christ comes back and we get a glorified body, we go to the judgment seat of Christ. We've studied all this. We get all the wrinkles ironed out. And when we get into eternity, all these people here who are going to fill the expanse of the second heaven Millions and millions and millions of them are now going to have to have a relationship with God, and God wants to fellowship with them. How is he going to do that? Well, here's the model. Right now, Jesus Christ came down, and he died on the cross, and uh, you have fellowship with God the Father through him. There's coming a time in the future. This is found in the book of Ephesians. We don't have time to get into it all, but it's very clearly laid out. Just as God in Proverbs 8 stepped out of the Godhead and manifested himself, there comes a time in the future when Jesus Christ steps back into the Godhead and ceases to exist. And the reason why he ceases to exist is because there's no need for God to manifest himself that way because now he's manifesting himself through you and me. And we take the place of Jesus Christ. We are the joint heir with Jesus Christ. We are the aristocracy of heaven. We become everything that Jesus Christ was. Right now, you have God's spirit in you. You don't have a counterfeit spirit. You don't have a lesser spirit. You have the Holy Spirit of God inside you. And there's coming a day you're going to get the body to match up the spirit. It won't be a secondary body. It won't be a just taking this one and reworking it. I don't want that. If you're going to get a perfect body, let me tell you something, folks. There's only one perfect body in the history of the world. It's his body. You want to get a perfect body, you've got to get his. You don't say, well, I'm not getting his. Then you ain't getting one. Walk around naked with a whatever. Anyway, so now, church history. <laughs> 2,000 years. How many, how, many, how many hundreds of millions of people do you think have been saved? I mean, I mean... 1,900 years of Christianity, uh, countless trillions. I mean, all across the world, the great Philadelphian church age, I mean, the dark ages, even though the Catholic church was persecuting it, boy, they, they were winning people to Christ left and right. All of those people, trillions, 
octillion million, billion, zillions. I mean, endless numbers. They're all going to be up there now in glorified bodies, a zillion, zillion, zillion replicas of Jesus Christ. What are we going to do? Kumbaya, my Lord, for all of eternity. Kumbaya. Okay, I got a new one. I love him better every D-A-Y. Good. All right, people from the 15th century. I love him better every D-A. Now let's do this. 15th century D, 18th century A, 20th century Y. Here we go. I love him better every... No, you messed it up. D-A-Y. Come on, a little faster. Is that what's going to happen? I don't think so. <laughs> Be kind of fun, though, wouldn't it? <clears throat> He's going to put them down on the planet. Models in Genesis. And the Bible says in Genesis that every day the Lord Jesus Christ came down and visited with them, ministered to them, fellowshiped with them. Except in that time it won't be the Lord Jesus Christ or he's going back into the Godhead. Back there we needed him because there was only one planet, Earth, and it was down at the bottom. Now we're going to have trillions and trillions and octillions of Earth. And what will happen is you and me... We'll go down there with the two people that he puts down, which are going to populate that earth. And we're going to be, we're going to be the connection between them and God. We're going to be the ones who represent God, and we're going to be the ones that they fellowship with God through. Now, I can just hear how many of God's people just go crazy when I say that. But you know what? If you stop and think about it, isn't that what you guys who are discipling are doing right now? Just in another limited way? Isn't that what I'm doing on Thursday night and Sunday morning? I really, one time I, I made a statement. I said, yeah, I said, uh, I have a Bible study on Thursday night. She's one of those pious ladies, you know. I said, yeah, I have a Bible study on Thursday night. I teach the Bible on Thursday night. We have a good time. She said, well, Brother Alexander, she says, now you know it's the Lord's Bible study, right? <laughs> I said, good, I'm glad to know that. Let him teach it. <laughs> I walked out. 20 minutes later. How's he doing? I looked at her. Has he said anything yet? Oh, I see. Well, let me explain it to you. It may be his Bible study, and that is true. But he's depending on me to tell you what he wants you to hear. See how it works? Right now, if you're discipling somebody, you know what you're doing? You're doing exactly the model that you're going to do in eternity. You're sitting so somebody who wants to find out about God, you know about God because you are God living inside you. And it isn't your human spirit that you're giving them, at least I hope it isn't. It's what the Holy Spirit of God has given you in your life that you're sharing with them. And then they build a relationship with God based on just coming to church with their Bible. I mean, somebody says, well, I'm, I'm discipling somebody of the Bible, giving them the Word of God. Well, you do know that, that the Lord is really doing it. Okay, let him drive over and teach them that. No, he's doing it through you because that's the plan. Certainly God could come down and just flip a switch. You ever see the movie, The Next Voice You Hear? 
How many ever saw that movie? It's an oldies. Back in it. You heard it? You seen it? You didn't see it, did you? You didn't see it. You just say you saw everything. It's a, it's, a, it's a movie made back in the, I think it was probably the late 50s. And the title of it is, look it up, The Next Voice You Hear. And it's a, it's a, it's a movie about how that every time of a certain part of a day, God came over all of the radio stations, all the TVs, and spoke to everybody. And it's a, it's a, it's, it, it's a goofy movie. <laughs> but that's the name of it, the next voice you hear. Now, God could have done that. God could have just got everybody together at lunch, gave you an hour lecture in the Bible, but he chose not to do it that way. He chose to do it through you. He chose you to get saved, become Jesus Christ, and then take the Holy Spirit of God inside you, him giving you somebody, and then you giving to them what he's given to you, and you representing Christ to them. The greatest model is the family. You have children. Those children don't know anything about God. All they know about God is what they see in mom and dad. And mom and dad, if they follow what we've talked about in child training, mom and dad nurture them up and bring them up, and they find Christ in a relationship with Christ through mom and dad's relationship with Christ. Why would you think that that's not the way it's going to work out here, just on a larger scale? And so God will put him on a planet, They'll grow up, get the tree of life. We will probably somehow get them over there. They'll get whatever it is based on their month. They'll come back. They live forever. They don't get old. They stay at 33 years of age. And they fellowship with God the rest of eternity. Everything is perfect. Everything is wonderful. Everything is right. Man has finally reached the utopia that he so long looked for where there's no disease, there's no sickness, there's no war, there's no anything that distracts. And most important of all, there's no devil. And we just live in perfect harmony and fellowship, and they learn about God and everything about His Word through His Son. That will be you. 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now are we the sons of God. Every man and every woman in this church building today now are we the sons of God. He didn't say, now are we the sons and the daughters of God. You never find that phrase in the New Testament for the church. It says, now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. You know why? Because the Son of God about you is on the inside. You still have your human designation of who you are on the outside. We need that now. But we won't need that over there, because you'll have the mind of Christ. You'll know everything. And then it goes on to say, but then... When Christ appears, we shall know him even as we are known. You're going to know everything. But right now, we're limited. So the model that we have of eternity is limited. So right now, I'll say to you, hey, this is so-and-so. He just, he just got saved, and they want to be discipled. You want to do it? Absolutely. What do you do? You meet up with them. You set up and open the Bible, and you give them, based on what God is doing inside of your life and what you know about the Bible that you've gotten from Him, you give to them, and you bring them up. And they can only fellowship for a period of time. They can only fellowship with God through you. And then you teach them how to fellowship with God on their own. But it starts with you. That's the model of what it's going to be out there except you're going to be complete out there. 
and you now will be the joint heir with Jesus Christ, and you will be the aristocracy of heaven, and you'll be God's son in every way, shape, or form. And you now will come to the place where you will represent God. You'll be the mediator between man and God. Right now, it's Christ Jesus. But he's going back into the Godhead because he doesn't need to be out anymore. God doesn't need to manifest himself through Christ because he's going to manifest himself through you, the Son of God. Why do you think that the church is called sons of God? Think that's just a clicky little term to make it all understandable? Because someday you, you, right now you are on the inside and someday you're going to be totally incomplete. Why does it, why does it call you and I, the church, the body of Christ? Why aren't you the body of Bob or the body of Josh or the body of this or the body of that? Why, why does the collective term body of Christ? These are things people don't think about. You know why? Because right now you have the body of Christ inside you spiritually. There's coming a day where you're going to become the body of Christ physically. And so you will do then as God ensures his, his, his plan. You will be part of it. This is why the Bible, I tell you that God has a plan for the, for the universe God has a plan for the earth, which is in the universe. And God has a plan for you, who lives on this earth, in this universe, who's part of God's overall plan, because God's something he wants you to do. And it's an incredible, incredible concept. Now, being honest, totally honest, this is why so many of God's people get sidetracked with other things. Some guy will come into your life and tell you a bunch of crap and, and, uh, and think that you think you found your utopia. You haven't found your utopia. Some girl will come into your life and you'll think that you found the Garden of Eden. Here's my Eve. Oh, I found the Garden of Eden. No, 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 no. You missed Eve and you got yourself a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> or a Brontosaurus. <laughs> a pterodactyl. No, no, no. I meet a lot of Christians that are, have a lot of problem with depression. And uh, I, I, I understand it, but I've never really understood it. But I understand it. But I never really understand it. But I understand enough to understand how to deal with it. But I don't really understand it. Because I'm telling you what. Romans chapter 8 says of this. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us in that day. Now, if you understand that verse, what in the world are you depressed about? I had a lady tell me one time she was on Prozac, and she was, had her kids on Prozac. In fact, I think they changed their name to Betty Prozac. It was on everything. She actually told me, she says, you know what? The disciples back in their day, they, they had to take drugs. They took herbs to help them with their depression. You see, where do you get that from? I, I got to believe that because I got to justify that I can't follow the Bible principles. Therefore, I have to believe that they did that so I'm okay with me doing it. That's how it works. And of course, that's ludicrous. If you have the power of God in your life and God is using you, what in the world are you depressed about? You understand everything. And you realize that right now, the most important thing in your life is the glory that's going to be revealed in you in that day. And don't let some guy or some gal or some circumstance or some anything or anybody take that from you. But that's what happens when you get out of the Bible and you don't understand what God is doing. God has a plan for the universe. God has a plan for earth. And God has a plan for you and for me. And right now, everything you do or don't do, 
is going to determine how it pays off over there on the other side. You're in training right now. Some of you are going to make incredible, incredible, incredible disciples on the other side because you're an incredible disciple now. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to say, you go to the head of the line. You're ready to rock and roll. Others, you're going to have to go through the lessons all over again. Just kidding. But you haven't spent one time of your life. You know, I've met, and I say this all the time. Out of my ministry, I've met God's people, male and female, who only go so far with the Lord. I've seen them in my almost 50 years of the ministry. I've seen them come and go four or five times. I mean, they'll come, they'll do good for a while, and then something will catch their eye and they're gone. They'll go through some really tough times. They'll come back and they'll do good for a little bit while they're gone again. Uh, I've seen some of them do it three or four or five times. And I, 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 they, they're in, they're out. They're in, they're out. They just can't ever get to a point where they ever have the victory. And you know what it is? Because they're always putting things before that book. They're always, they, they always follow that uh, old adage, you know, that the grass is greener on the other side. And, and that may be true, but where do you see the water bill? I mean, you'll never have more, be more complete, be more satisfied, be more perfect than everything you want to do if you just stay with God and put everything else behind that. It'll keep you from making bad choices. It'll keep you from getting in bad relationships. It'll keep you from getting into anything that will destroy your relationship with God because that is the first thing. Tomorrow, I'm going to take you through the last two things, and I'm going to show you how to use that, those, those landmarks. I'm going to give you some fun illustrations of, uh, and you're going to come away with a vast amount of knowledge. But I end it this way. Finding the true church. The true church will always have the true Bible, first of all. And you could take this, finding the true woman or finding the true man. And here's the form you always follow. We know the Bible has a designated set of principles. If you go to a church that constantly tries to take the Bible from you, and that's what they do. You're in the wrong place. You know you're in the right place when you find out the church is all they want to do is give the Bible to you. And it's a simple thing where, you know, their guys will tell you, well, you can't trust the Bible as the Word of God because it's not perfect. I'll tell you just the opposite. They will tell you, well, there's a lot of mistakes in your Bible. I'll tell you, show me one. You always know the real deal by they follow the real deal. You get into a relationship with a guy or a gal and they want to lead you outside the principles to do this or do this or be here or stay overnight tonight or do this or do that or let's come over and have a party. Let me tell you something. That is not the principles you want to follow. And there's landmarks in everything. There's landmarks in history. There's landmarks in relationships. Follow the landmarks. Always realize that the phony deal will always try to get you to go against the book that God gave you. And most of God's people will go right along with that. You know why? Because fundamentally, deep down inside, your problem is with authority anyhow. That's why you've been in and out five or six times. You just can't satisfy yourself that that book is the final authority. You go along with it for a while till you get a better deal. And then that becomes your final authority. He becomes your final authority. He'll say the right thing. She'll talk the right thing. She'll say the right thing. She'll talk the right thing. But when you get down to the landmarks, it's phony. 
So you see how this thing with eternity is an incredible concept. And it's a thing where I hope that you get a better appreciation. And I know, I, I just took what would probably take 30 hours, maybe 50, to go through and lay out all the deals. But that was not my point. You get enough Bible here that you can put all the pieces together. You got me to help you put it together. I thought long and hard about this, and I thought my best shot here with all these people is to give everybody a walk-through, easy-understand format. If you stay with the book, you stay with Institute, you stay with me, you stay with the church, you stay with the people that's working with you, and if you need to be worked with somebody, you want to get help with this or discipled, I've got tons of people that can help you put all this into perspective. It doesn't have to be just about discipleship one or two. If you want some extra help of going through subjects, I got the guys and the gals that can do it for you. They know it better than I do. But my point is simply this. There, you now have a complete, total understanding of how the Bible lays out from Genesis to Revelation. I have brought you full circle. Yeah. Yes. Um, is there a concept of time in eternity? Because you talked about the 33 years and the 12 months. So how does that work? I, I have, his question is, and it's a great question, is there a concept of time in eternity? I don't think it runs by time anymore. I think it just runs by designated periods. But I can't prove that. Uh, the Bible says the fullness of time, that's pretty clear. How they do that, I mean, honestly, you're going to have the sun and the moon. Uh, that's going to designate day and night. Maybe it's just that simple. Maybe we don't have to worry about the individual 15 minutes between the, or four quarters of an hour. We just work off. Because he keeps telling over and over and over again that during this whole time, the sun and the moon are going to endure forever. That may be the key, which would mean that our time basis then will be off the sun, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the moon, the body of Christ, the church. But I can't get into that. Yeah, I don't know. Real loud. Well, that's, that's the whole thing. The Gentiles have to become part of the nation of Israel. Yeah, everything runs through that. And there will be Gentiles, obviously, that are born, but they'll have to become part of the Jew. Any way you slice it, that's the model of the landmark in the Old Testament, the Gentiles become Jews. In the New Testament, the Jews, everybody has to become a Christian. Of course, we won't be, we won't be operating under that mode. But the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, spiritual kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven will now be fully established. The kingdom of heaven will be established here in all of this. The kingdom of God will be established in us as Jesus Christ. Yes, ma'am. Well, that, her question is, and I didn't say that, I didn't get to that. Um, her question is, will there be some that get to 33 years age and say, no thanks? I have heard that, but I don't find any, I don't, I, that would be a detriment to God's plan. Then there would be something wrong with God's plan if that happened. I've heard of this. They were playing with us, I hope. I heard this. They used to, the old boys used to hit us with this. They'd lay this out, you know, and I remember going through it. I remember, I remember old Tommy Thomas one time, uh, he was laying all this stuff out, and uh, these guys would find any way they could to whack you. 
they would find any way they could to try to get you to think and put it to you. And he was up there and he was laying this out and he was talking about how that we're going to be Christ and that we're going to go down on these planets and we're going to be Christ to them just like it was in Adam and Eve. And he says the universe is so big that these, you get the idea that the planets are going to be bumping up each other. You'll never see the planets. They're so vast between the distances. But he said this, and he, he said, yep, I can just see him. He used to wear, a, a, wherever he went, he wore a little bow tie with a three-piece suit. And just a got, nice little guy. And he was running the Brown Street Mission, and he was something else. And uh, he said, yep. He says, we all will be a three, three-year-old male. We'll be all like Christ, and God will put us down on the planet, just like they did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says, uh, and uh, they'll have fellowship with God. But then he says, let me ask you a question. What if? What if that on one of those extended planets out there where it's running just like earth with Adam and Eve, what if they sin? And then you, as Christ, have to come down and die on the cross to purge their sins. Now that's a thought. I don't believe that. I don't want to believe that. <laughs> I refuse to believe that. That just, that just that could not happen. But that's how they used to nail us back then. Because the thought is a sobering thought. Because if you know what the price that he paid on the cross for you, and now you're Christ and you've got all these people down here like he had, God insured it by coming down himself, and you're now Christ with God and God with Christ, and you're, you're part of the Godhead as far as that's concerned, as the body of Christ in God's plan, and that would happen. Wow. But that won't happen. Just like I don't see how somebody could get to that point, be transported up there and walk up and say, nah. I, I, I was going to take this, but I, I got a new boat, and I want it. I, I don't see that. That would only go to illustrate that God's plan wasn't perfect. God, through his death on the cross, and his way of doing things, Sarah, and his way of laying everything out, and here's the deal. Here's what it says right here. Now, I know this is not in the Bible, but it's, it's pretty clear. This trial ends in Genesis 3. The subsequent revelation of God is devoted to an accurate record of God himself becoming a man to redeem a fallen creation and to absolutely ensure. It's a sure thing. God's government's going to go on without sin. So, I, I know. Now, I, I, I throw this out the last thing here, and this has always been, uh, this helps put the ages of ages in a context. It looks like from Isaiah 66, this has always been an issue that I've never fully understood, and maybe this is the answer, maybe it's not, but since we're all family here and we're all in the book together, and I pretty much trust you explicitly, um, probably, and I leave my room for not being true, but probably, from what I can see, there's places like Isaiah 66 that show that the lake of fire is on this earth. And then there's other places that shows it like it's out in eternity. The only way I can reconcile that now that I've given you this is that there's a probably, if that is true, probably in the ages of ages, it's here on earth. And then when you move out into eternity proper, it's wherever it is from there. 
I, I would say that, that there's probably some relevance to that, even though I cannot speak to it any farther than that. But you see things in the Bible that just, I mean, Isaiah 66 is very clear that there's somebody going forth and looking at the carcass of the men that transgressed against God, and it's on this earth. And there's places in there like Isaiah 34 where it talks about the, the earth being turned into pitch. And, and this is the reason for the Dead Sea. Probably during the ages of ages, the Dead Sea will be where Sodom and Gomorrah was, will be the lake of fire here on earth. And then it, it goes out from there. But I'm just throwing that out. I'm not t teaching that as doctrine. I'm just saying it all goes together somehow, some way, some shape, some form. Well, let me ask you. Did, I, did you everybody follow me pretty good? That was my goal. I want everybody to get, it, get an understanding of it. So I just made it easy. And we can come back and put the, the nuts and bolts together. I mean, you know I'm not going to lie to you about it. So everything I've given you is based on Scripture. We can get to that. I just didn't want to get bogged down in running a lot of places proving what I'm saying because then you lose the context of the story as it's flowing. So I would rather just tell you the story, help you see it and understand it, and then we can go back and put the pieces together as you need to.